Hi there, this is Pastor Tim. I'm the minister at Eastside Church. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, and inclusive. And we are thrilled that you found our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church community, you can visit us at www.eastsideatl.org. Amen. Thank you, Kate. What a what an enriching dimension it has been to our worship throughout Lent to have these meditations offered as yet another way for us to center ourselves and to create space for the work that God intends to do in, with, and through us in this time of gathered worship. I just want to reiterate, if, if you missed the opening um, to our service this morning, welcome again. And please take a minute and fill out that check-in form in the comments section as that is tremendously helpful to our staff and our leadership as we try to connect with you all. Especially if you're a guest, guest, we would just love to have the opportunity to say thank you for being with us in worship and to just be there to offer any information, answer any questions that you might have about our church community. And something that I did fail to mention at the beginning of service is that directly after the benediction on this morning, after this service, we're going to be offering two different ways that you can receive Holy Communion. The first way will be to, to jump immediately over to a Zoom meeting. That's going to be in the comments section as well of the YouTube feed, so you can click right over and, and join us. All you would need to do that is um, some form of, of liquid, that is safe to drink, of course, and something, some bread or something kind of like bread that's edible, and we're going to bless the elements from the sanctuary, um, so wherever you are, you can experience the Eucharist, Holy Communion. The other option, we were going to have an outdoor communion liturgy today, but there was... Um, may still be high, high percentage chance of, of rain and storms um, right over the time we were going to do that. So we are still going to be offering a walk-up communion option from 12 to 1 o'clock. So if you want to jump in the car after worship, come, come on over to the church, 468 Moreland Avenue. I realize some of you may not know where that is since you haven't been to the, the building, depending on how long you've been with us. But 468 Moreland Avenue, southeast in Atlanta. Um, from 12 to 1, we will be offering an outdoor communion option where you can just walk up and receive with yourself or with um, your family members or other folks in your pod that may come with you. Well, this morning, we come to the kind of penultimate Sunday before Resurrection Sunday, before Easter. We come to the the near end of our Lenten journeys, of our 50 days of, of walking through a season where we're intentionally seeking to enrich and to grow our capacity and relationship with the divine. And this week begins what Christians name Holy Week. And on this week, we begin with Palm Passion Sunday this morning, and we move on Thursday into, um, into Maundy Thursday, Friday to Good Friday, Saturday to Holy Saturday, where we wait, where we grieve and pray as we anticipate Sunday morning. But today, we come to Palm Sunday, this Sunday where historically we experience our children parading through the sanctuary with freshly cut palm branches singing Hosanna. 
Hosanna, which means literally, God save us. And we come this morning to another Sunday of gathering digitally from afar, and we're grateful and we're so thankful for the ways that that Troy and Roxy and Karina and Katie have brought the Eastside community into our liturgical life through video and through these forms of media. But we also come this morning and we recognize that it is yet again hard to be apart. And it's hard to have to put off our gathering that we had planned for this afternoon outside in the parking lot for communion. But we are going to try again next week after Easter, so please join with me in praying that it does not rain next Sunday so that we can have our parking lot celebration of the resurrection. Well, friends, with that, I'm going to actually be preaching mainly from the text Brianna read, so I'm not going to be doing a scripture reading right now, but I'm going to open us in a word of prayer, so wherever you may find yourself, I invite you to bow your heads or to find a a way of being comfortable and sacred so that you can hear what is being said and experience God in these moments. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, I ask that you would continue to meet us in these moments at the beginning of this sacred and holy week. And I pray, God, that these words that I have prepared might indeed become your word for your people in this time. I ask, God, that you would speak through them and where it's certainly necessary in spite of me. And as I preach them, God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the collective meditations of our hearts and our minds across time and space would indeed be good, right, pleasing, and acceptable in your sight. God, our rock, our redeemer, our hope, and our savior. All of this we pray in the strong name of the Christ, Jesus our Lord. And everyone said and or typed, amen. Well, I don't know if it's just because I'm getting older, as all of us are, uh, in case you didn't know that. But I've noticed as I, as I get older, this propensity that, that we human beings seem to have, either as individuals or as small groups or as larger collective groups. And that propensity is actually really obvious, but it's just something that, that, that maybe sometimes it's helpful to stop and reflect on. And it's that we, we like to mark historic things that have happened. Specifically for each and every one of you, you probably in some form or format celebrate each year the day that you were born, whether that be with friends or family or with Facebook happy birthdays or some combination of the two. We, from a young age, begin celebrating the birth of one another, specifically those people that we care about, who are close to us, or who have made a huge impact in history that we're inspired by, the birthdays of of people like Dr. King or Mother Teresa. We pay attention to the births of, of great people in human history, but we also pay attention to to events that happen. And, and these events, as we celebrate them, and they happen every year, they can be distinguished one from another. And I'll give you an example. I was thinking about New Year's, for instance. So I say New Year's, you have no idea what year I'm talking about, right? I just say New Year's. And 
And as I was thinking of that, it kind of shows the rhythmic way that every year there's a new year and we celebrate another rotation around the sun and the earth. But if I say Y2K, right, you know that I'm referring to a very specific new year, one that was filled with lots of anxiety by coders and tech people around the world that our computer coding did not have the capacity to turn to the year 2000, too many zeros or something like that, I don't know. But Y2K immediately takes us to a particular New Year's celebration. But there's always a new year. And for, for our birthdays, there was a first birthday, first new day, and then there was year one, two, three, four, etc. Well, this morning, as I've already mentioned, we come to this day, we, we, we in the Christian liturgical tradition name Palm Passion Sunday. And even if you grew up going to a church that recognized and celebrated Palm Passion Sunday, that doesn't necessarily mean that you understand where these two words come from and what in the world they mean, palm and passion. What do the two of these have to do with one another? You know, was Jesus really passionate about palms or vice versa? I, you know, but... I say that to say that there's a whole different sermon about insider language that we could give, but not today. But that is, even for those of us who consider ourselves members of our religious traditions, we may understand our religious tradition's way of talking about it, but we may not, have un not understand how we got there, what came before, how we found ourselves at what we call Palm Passion Sunday today, because it hasn't always been called that. In fact, Palm Passion Sunday used to be two separate Sunday morning experiences on the liturgical calendar. And I say that because yet again this year is one of those years where the Passover comes very closely aligned with the Christian celebration of Holy Week. And I think that's noteworthy because our faith is rooted in the life and the work of the man Jesus. And, and I know that we're all doing a much better job of, of understanding this today than maybe we have, but, but Jesus was not Christian. He was not white. He was certainly not an American. Jesus was an ancient first century Jewish, Torah-abiding human. And... And Jesus, in his ministry, as you read through the Gospels, you quickly realize that he spent very little time, actually, with those outside of Judaism. He, he has very few interactions with the Gentile, the non-Jewish world in his ministry that is recorded. That, that expansion to the Gentile world came later with, with the Apostle Paul. So for Jesus, from his bloodline that we see at the beginning of the Gospels, such as Matthew, all the way to his, the culture that he swam in and lived in, to, to the theology that shaped him and shaped his view of God and humanity, I don't think Jesus understood himself as a, as a departure from Judaism, as something that was, was leaving his tribal roots. I think Jesus saw himself and his ministry and his disciples as the right next step, the right next move or progression of his ancient Jewish faith. I think Jesus, he saw himself and the work that he was doing in the world as the next right step for his people. 
He was teaching his disciples how to lead into a new future, but not a future that was a departure, but a future that was maybe a bit of a correction, sure, but not by any stretch of the imagination a a complete moving away from his Jewish roots. Jesus was a Torah-abiding Jewish human. In his tribal group, they had a whole host of special yearly observances and, and, and rituals that, that, that not only were cultural and a part of their, their genetic and bloodline identity as Jewish people, but also were about their religious notions about the divine and that, that helped them remember and recall these collective historic events that the ancient forerunners of their people had experienced. And, and, and This is important when we come to Holy Week 2,000 years later and and, and talk about Palm Passion Sunday. This this first Sunday before we launch into what we name as Holy Week because Holy Week in that language actually comes much, much later than did the language of Passover Week. Passover predates Holy Week by a lot takes us all the way back, not just to Jesus' time in the first century, but to the first book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. The Passover recounts that, that ancient story where God calls the man Moses to, to be the leader who would liberate God's people, the Hebrews, from enslavement in Egypt. This ancient superpower. And, and the Passover was the last meal that the Hebrews shared together on Egyptian soil in the Egyptian empire. It was the last meal that they sat down and shared in the old land. Before in the middle of the night, they as a group followed Moses and escaped under the cover of dark. And we call this the Passover because there's this this angel of death that comes and pronounces judgment on the Egyptian firstborns. And the Hebrews escape, and and each year, every generation that followed would come together, and they would remember and tell this story, and they themselves would share this meal together as a way of remembering and retelling the Exodus story of Moses and of that last meal on Egyptian soil under Egyptian oppression, which is important because... If you were paying attention as Brianna read our gospel text this morning, you'll notice that our Palm Passion Sunday, the story, it's already very different from any of the other, other beginnings of the Passover that we see in, in the Bible, right? This year, the Passover that, that Mark and the other gospel writers recount is Jesus setting down, kind of saying, this year, this celebration of the Passover is going to be different. It is going to be the year. It's going to be something of a revolution. But it would be a revolution that would not just be a recapitulation or a sort of copy and paste of the Exodus event up forward into the the first century Jewish situation. 
And here's why. In the original story, right, the, the Hebrews had, had made their way to Egypt because of the Joseph story at the end of Genesis, and they had set down roots there and had been well-received, but over the generations, eventually the, the Egyptians enslaved the Hebrew people because there were too many of them, and they wanted to oppress them and keep them down. So when Moses came to preach and to inspire liberation for the ancient Hebrews from Egypt, it, it, was, it was different to say, we're going to leave this land that we came to during a famine and now is oppressing us. We're going to leave because we don't belong here. That's different than the situation and the scenario that Jesus in the first century Jewish people find themselves in. The last Passover was on Egyptian soil. But Jesus would have always celebrated the Passover not on Egyptian soil, but in Jerusalem with the rest of his sojourners. In Jesus' day, things then were totally different. They're not in Egypt. They've actually gone through this whole experience of wilderness and then promised land, uh, of losing their land, going into exile, then returning, and now, now Rome is in charge. No, they didn't want to leave their land as the Hebrews would leave Egypt escape Egypt, they wanted the, the Roman occupiers out, right? They wanted Rome to get out of their house. They wanted to be left alone. They wanted Rome and their chariots and their swords and their violence and Caesar's supposed good news to be good news for somebody else. And they believed that that change and transformation was going to happen through a human Messiah who God would send. The best thing I can do to imagine what the Passover was like in the first century when Jesus would have been gathering there would, would be, I guess, a little bit like spring break at Disneyland, especially like after all the pandemic stuff is done. You know, that place is gonna be horrible for about a decade, I'm afraid. And that's kind of what I imagine Jerusalem's like, because Jerusalem's not a massive place, and, and the, the Jewish people are spread out all over. And they all, you know, if they can, they can they afford to try to come to Jerusalem every year for Passover. So all those folks pile into this city. And every year there was at least one zealot on one street corner on a soapbox preaching about how this year, this year's the year, this Passover. Let's do it, political revolt. Let's gather, let's mobilize, and let's drive Rome out the week of our most incredible and festive and commemorative religious gathering. There was always at least one Jewish zealot out there trying to round up a band of rebels who would begin what they hoped would be the process of folding Rome's empire back on itself to the point where it actually began to become the custom of the Roman governor to the week of Passover to travel from the west and actually set up shop in Jerusalem and work from, work from Jerusalem that week. They figured if, if the Roman governor was there overlooking what was going on, then people would be that much less likely to revolt. So Pilate often would would have this rhythm that Jesus would have observed year, year after year uh, of coming in the day before, setting up shop with his Roman entourage, and 
I don't know, looking for Wi-Fi at the best local coffee shop so that he could do his Roman stuff from Jerusalem. That was an anachronistic joke, but none of you are present in the sanctuary except for the band, so you, I can't hear your laughter, but I know at home it's there. <laughs> but with this in mind, um, two fairly prominent biblical scholars, Dominic Crossan and Marcus Borg, make an observation that I think is pretty fascinating, and it's that if it's true that Pilate lived to the west of the cities, so that when his entourage would arrive, they would enter Jerusalem from the west, we're already told Jesus is coming in from the east at the beginning of Palm Sunday, it could mean that Jesus, who would have always been in Jerusalem for the Passover and had seen this a million times since before he could remember, knew exactly what Rome would do and knew exactly when they normally did it. Which means that Jesus on the top of the hill on his his donkey could mean that from the other end, Pilate was entering with his chariots and his warriors and his entourage and his wealth and his power and his fear-mongering and his empire of oppression of don't you all dare try anything this year during Passover because we will stomp you down. Was it the case that Jesus was entering at the same time It's very possible, which would give this whole text a different tone and a different reading. It would mean that Jesus, at a whole new, even even more intense level, is engaging in this sort of prophetic, political, and religious guerrilla theater. He's doing something to make a a point that that would, would kind of reverberate on multiple levels. Not only was he sort of enacting what the ancient Jewish scriptures said the Messiah would do, Pilate wouldn't have gotten any of that. But Pilate would get the fact that a guy is on the other side of the city marching in with people waving palm branches, laying them down at his feet, shouting, Hosanna, which means God save us. While salvation, right, Rome thought they were the salvation of the world. They thought they were the good news. Salvation is supposedly entering from the other side of the city. But the people are shouting at this Jewish guy in the back of a coal. What's what's happening here? Hosanna. God, save us. Can you imagine after the news started to reverberate into the city because the city's packed and Jesus and his disciples knew this? Did people say things like, hey, did y'all notice that 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 potential Jesus, potential Messiah guy that that, that traipsed in here on the back of the colt, he doesn't even wear a sword. (laughs) Who doesn't wear a sword? What kind of Messiah? Oh yeah, and somebody else has said, yeah, I heard him preach back in uh, Matthew 6. It was on a mount, there was a sermon, and he kept talking about loving enemies and praying for our Roman persecutors, which I thought was really ridiculous. I mean, who would, why would we pray for the people who we want to overcome in battle? It doesn't, it doesn't even make sense. Did the people already have thoughts about Jesus from his preaching ministry of his upside-down kingdom that he was proclaiming? Did the people have thoughts about him coming into Jerusalem without even a sword, without a chariot, without an army, with just a group 
a hodgepodge of Jewish peasants ripping leaves off whatever trees they could find and laying them on the ground, sort of in this faux king entrance. Jesus is the new Moses in the Gospels. He is the new David, the new king in the Gospels. That is absolutely what they're depicting. He is this person coming and and creating this whole new meaning for the Exodus and for the Passover. But the problem is none of it fits with, with what Jesus' tribe, with what his collective understood to be coming with and through the Messiah because Jesus' people for the most part, I think had probably very little interest in loving Rome or Rome's citizens. They wanted to defeat Rome. They wanted to drive Rome out, to get them out of their house. These, this oppressive, massive empire who, who thought of themselves as salvation of the world. But Jesus says to love enemies and pray for those who persecute. People would have been so confused by this man. And I don't know about you, but I'm often confused by this man to this day, but most of the time in the best of ways. This Jesus who came, who entered into Jerusalem, depending on which you read, on the back of a donkey or on the back of a a colt, not the back of a horse or a chariot, that was not a random decision, friends. This was something that Jesus premeditated and thought through. This was intentional. He is entering as Jerusalem's king, just not that kind of king. He wasn't going to rule like a Jewish version of Caesar, which is maybe kind of what people wanted. They wanted somebody who could play ball, right? Somebody who could punch back harder. Someone who could help us out smart in battle. But the whole point was Jesus would be king as God would be king. And that, again, creates all kinds of problems and trouble for Jesus and for us and for the people of the first century because it's so much more complicated that way to have the empathy of God, the eternal empathy to to, to be able to look at all of humanity simultaneously and see all of the depth of their histories and their experiences and their pains and their joys and, and their stories, to know all of that simultaneously. Can you imagine what it would do to us humans? It would be like, crushing and also brilliant and it would be overwhelming in every, in every way to have the empathy of God for humanity. But, but what if Jesus had just enough of that, that, that is he is envisioning and praying through what it means for, for him to live into this calling to be the Messiah? Is he starting to warm up as his ministry progresses to the Gentile population, even to Rome? Is he starting to like begin to have a sense of love for them as he's praying for his enemies and his persecutors? Is his own heart getting bigger and bigger and bigger and beginning to include those even outside of his own tribe? There's this beautiful story of this Roman centurion in the Gospels who comes to Jesus and begs him, is weeping and says, Jesus, please heal my servant. You don't even need to come to the house. You can do it from afar. And Jesus is completely blown away that this centurion, this Roman soldier, has this level of faith in him. And his response is kind of funny. He's like, not even my own tribe and people believe in me like this. But, but you, a servant of Rome, and why do you, you're Roman. Why do you care so much about your 
servant. It's a fascinating story. And I wonder if it's a cue that Jesus' inclusive ministry is always moving to the next, growing and expanding. Is Jesus the embodiment of the kingship of God for the world and Depending on your theology, I can tell you what I believe about God, and it's that God hates the loss of that which God has created. God hates the loss of life. Especially, God hates the loss of premature, unneeded, meaningless, hate-filled, revenge-filled loss of life. The story of Cain and Abel is meant to be this, this moment of deep grief for the reader because the first siblings are already attacking each other in Scripture to the point where one of them snuffs the other one out out of jealousy. See, the problem is, and Jesus gets this, is that death is this. Like Rome is an uninvited guest, right, in, in Israel and in Jerusalem, death is this uninvited guest in the, the lives of the human race and on our planet, and it keeps coming where it's not welcome and where we don't want it, and it's not time. It, it keeps showing up premature and, and encroaching more and more, taking more territory like Rome does. And Jesus can see that, which is why he says the only solution to this is to get to the root of it and the root of it starts in the heart and the heart kills because of hatred. And hatred is, is human beings not, not wrestling with what it means to be the embodiment of the divine of God's heart for our world but, but turning inward on ourselves and allowing the violence done to us to make us turn against others instead of allowing ourselves to be transformed and Jesus knows that if he comes with a sword, if he comes like a zealot, A, he knows that there's not enough of them. They're too small. Rome is huge. But he also knows that even if they were big enough to destroy Rome, what does, what does defeating Rome do for the, the huge arc of history? How does that transform humanity for, forever? It just sort of turns the tables one more time. Jesus knew that he could only lead our world as, as God, it would be king of our world, if he could, if he could move us from this spiral, this, this infinite spiral of violence and of hate that just keeps going down like without a bottom of bitterness, of revenge. Jesus could see that all of that trajectory led human beings and our planet to a premature death that, that out-of-control selfishness and narcissism would lead to the destruction of the planet and of our resources. So Jesus came to teach these simple truths that would transform everything if we took him seriously. Truths that Dr. King had at the foundation of what he taught in the civil rights movement. You have to love your enemy until they become friend. You have to, you, you, you cannot punch back harder every time. You'll both end up dead. It doesn't work. And bitterness, it's like, it's like drinking poison and hoping your enemy dies. But why do we keep doing it? But Jesus, on Palm Sunday, on Passion Sunday, he enters Jerusalem at the beginning of Passover, which would become our Holy Week. It does become our 
remembrance of Holy Week and the Passover. He comes on a donkey in peace without a sword. And he goes, he goes not into battle with Rome like the people suspected, but he ultimately on Good Friday goes into battle with the power and the existence of, of death having some level of finality. Jesus takes the immortal life of God into the, the power of death itself, sort of to disarm the bomb from the inside, sort of transform that darkest, scariest place in human existence, the, the human fear of no longer being. The Messiah takes that reality with the life of God to defeat it and to transform it so that something new might come. I don't know if Jesus triumphantly enters Jerusalem here. I think he humbly enters Jerusalem as a subversive prophet doing guerrilla theater. But I don't know that I would mark it as triumphal. And I think sometimes this narrative that, well, Jesus came nice the first time, but when he comes back, he's going to be really ticked off. And I just really struggle with that notion that God would be one way in Jesus here and another way here. I think if God is authentic and God is who God says God is and Jesus was the representative of the divine, then I think who we saw God being on that donkey walking into Jerusalem in humility and peace seeking to change hearts, that is God forever. The God who wants human hearts to transform and to be in community and love with one another and with the divine and that is the mission, friends, that I believe that we're on and the Messiah is continuing to move us towards. So this year, this Holy Week, may this be an opportunity for us to realign who we are with the mission of the Christ. In the name of God, the creator, the sustainer, and the redeemer, amen and amen. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed this week's message and we look forward to seeing you soon. If you listen from afar and you would like to support the work that we are doing in East Atlanta and on Atlanta's east side, you can visit our website, www.eastsideatl.org, and find our giving portal there.